All right, let me pray for us, and then we're going to turn our attention to God's word in Matthew chapter 5. Lord, thank you for this word that we come to read now together today, which says that you have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We pray that you'd help us to understand what you mean when you say that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word is true and right and good, and we give ourselves to the study of that word now as your people so that we might grow in the knowledge of you. And we pray for those who are, have not come to be one of your people through faith in Jesus. We pray for our friends here with us today that that's their situation, that's where they are at this moment. We pray that you would speak to them and teach them that you might draw them in with a declaration of your love and your goodness and your power and your truth. Would you just help me to speak what is true and right and helpful? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And I got a little worried there for a second. We had a few little sprinkles. Did y'all feel it during worship? Got a little nervous there, but we're good. All right, so Matthew chapter 5, we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been with us through this series, one of the things I'll tell you now is that we are entering in to a new section of the sermon. So you'll recall that up to this point, we have been talking, Jesus has been talking in these Beatitudes uh, where he's been saying, this is the kind of person that you are to be. And we've seen, we have seen that the type of person we are to be, Jesus is dealing with our hearts first and saying, let me talk to you about who you need to be in your heart and in your character before I talk with you about what you need to do how you need to behave, right? Because Jesus is more interested in our hearts than just our behavior, right? And we're gonna see that again today. But that's what we've been thinking about. And we've seen there that when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn, or blessed are those who are pure in heart, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that he's, he's identifying who it is that we are to be. And now we're going to turn to a new section of the sermon. We're having addressed that. Jesus is now going to begin to talk about what it is that we must do. As followers of Jesus, as Christians, how are we supposed to live? And he's going to give us a broad kind of general statement about how we are to approach his word today. And then he's going to flesh that out for us in the weeks ahead. So in the rest of chapter 5, all of chapter six and the beginning of chapter seven, it's really going to be specific details related to this passage that we are talking about today in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. So let me read it for us. Let's get our eyes in the text. Here's what it says. It says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's gonna be the center of our understanding today. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Then he goes on to say, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So as we read that, I think about how many of you have ever put together a piece of furniture from Ikea? Has anybody gotten this a piece of furniture from Ikea? Yeah, absolutely. How many of you have been able to turn that one hour project into a three hour project? Yeah, absolutely. And, the re and here's what happens. Let me say, every time you put together, it happens with all kinds of things, but Ikea seems to be real nifty at this because none of us can read Swedish. And so we get a bunch of these directions with stick figures and pictures, right? And at some point you find yourself looking, you've got this little Allen wrench is pretty much all they give you. And you got this bookcase or this couch or whatever it is that you got. And you're trying to put it together. And you got these pictures. And after a while you look and you decide Surely this part that I'm holding in my hand is not pictured anywhere on these directions. I cannot see that on here, right? And you're trying to, and you say, or they say this goes here. There's no way this can go here. It's going to have to go over there. At some point, have you thrown the directions away and said, I know better. The directions are wrong. These, these, this goes over here not over there, right? So we've all done that. That is, by the way, how you turn a one hour project into a three hour project by getting rid of the directions, right? 
And, but here's the thing, at some point, so many of us decide that we know better than the manufacturer at Ikea. Surely they didn't include everything in the box. There's a piece missing, right? There's something they're not telling me here that I need to know, some super secret to get this bookcase together that I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure out and I'm not gonna use the directions. Well, as we come to Matthew chapter five, verse 17, when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've, I've actually come to fulfill them One of the things he's saying to us in saying that is that he's saying the word of God for Christians is authoritative. It's to be obeyed. And one of the things I've had so many conversations across the years that essentially boil down to this, boil down to that Ikea moment. You know what the Bible says? It just seems out of step with the world I'm living in. You know, I have this desire that I feel and, and the Bible says that it, that's not okay, that I shouldn't follow that desire. But I think the Bible's wrong. I think I'm gonna just, I think I need to recognize that I'm putting the directions away and I'm gonna figure out how to put this thing called my life together without the directions. Because surely when it says this, and I live in this kind of a world, those two things can't go hand in hand. There's a better way. And what Jesus is saying when he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he's saying that my word is not to be dismissed. No part of my word, that every syllable of every sentence, every part we see here, he says, not one iota, that's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. He's saying not the smallest mark of a pen from my word is to be dismissed as irrelevant or unfactual or untrue. It is without error and it is to be obeyed. It is without error and it is to be obeyed. Now here's the tricky part. I would say when I was growing up, I found that most people who found themselves sort of wanting to live in a way contrary to God's word often just did what I just described in that Ikea illustration and said, I'm just gonna say that the directions are wrong. The word is wrong. I want to live this way. The Bible says this. So I say the Bible's wrong and I'm gonna go live this way. That's, I think, how many of of you have encountered that situation? Yeah, absolutely. But here's what I find even trickier today is that we are living in a world and in a time where many people actually who profess the name of Christ don't just say the Bible is wrong. They say we've misunderstood what the directions say. We've misunderstood what's plain and clear. We think it means something else and we will say that it means something else so that we can do or live in the world in the way that we want to live or perhaps not be marginalized by a world that sees things very differently than we do. Both of those things are essentially a way of saying the directions are wrong. I'm gonna piece it together on my own. And friends, I wanna tell you, that's a disastrous choice to make. And Jesus is inviting us to see here today by talking about this thing called the law and the prophets and how he fulfills them. He's inviting us to see that every word on every page of scripture is authoritative and that we are to live in obedience to it. You with me? So that's what we wanna unpack today. I wanna just try and answer two questions for you. The first is, let's ask the question, what does Jesus mean at the end in verse 20? When he says, you need a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. So we need, to, we need to understand what kind of righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees. And then the second question is this, is what does Jesus mean when he says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets? How does he do that? How does he fulfill the law and the prophets? And as you understand how he does that, my hope for you, church, and for myself is that we might Uh, put more weight and more authority uh, in saying yes to God's word. Because here's the thing, friends, just going back to what I've said, that, that so many want to dismiss the word of God when they find that their desires run contrary to it or the pressure from the world around them wants them to move in a different direction. The thing I want you to understand that's always true is that when you do that, when we dismiss God's word, something from it as inaccurate or um you know, misinterpreted when, when the interpretation is clear. When we do that, we're doing it because we ultimately believe the path to joy in life 
is counter to the way God's word makes us go, that they're moving in separate directions. God's word says goes this way, but I am sensing that joy and fulfillment in life would, would mean I need to go this way. And I want you to understand that's never the case, that the path to fulfillment and joy, God glorifying, God honoring joy and fulfillment in life is always the path of obedience to God's word. You hear me? Don't believe the lie that you will get more joy by going contrary to God's word, right? In our marriages, let's just use this as an illustration. In our marriages, how many times have, have I encountered couples who just think, you know, the path to joy is divorce. The path to joy is just to, to end this marriage. And there's no biblical grounds for ending that marriage. And yet it's just too hard. It's too difficult. And friends, I don't say that to dismiss that marriage is hard. Can we all say amen to the fact that marriage is hard? Not to be a cliche here, all right? None of the husbands wanted to say it, did you? You recognize, you're smarter than that. That's good. You recognize marriage is hard. Two sinners trying to live together and serve one another and say, I'll put you ahead of myself. Like that's, that's hard, right? And so many couples get to that place where in that hardship, they just become convinced that this is the path to, to joy and happiness and fulfillment is, is going this way, but it's contrary to God's word. And friends, I want to say that the pathway to, to true joy and fulfillment is always the pathway of obedience to God's word. It may mean going through some really hard stuff and doing some really hard work to get there, but there is always fullness of joy on the other side. And the pathway of just following what, you, what is the path of least resistance, thinking that leads to joy, is always the pathway of death. Do you know that? It's always the pathway of death. I always think of Proverbs 5 uh, when I think about that. This proverb about this young man who's being led astray by a woman who wants him to commit adultery with her. And she says, oh, come, come. And, you know, like, I want you to come and, uh, you know, be in relationship with me. And the author of Proverbs, do you remember what the author of Proverbs says? He says, like an ox to the slaughter, he follows her. Why? Because he thinks that's the pathway to joy. And he says, no, no, the pathway to joy, the pathway to happiness, the pathway to fulfillment is never the pathway contrary to God's word. It is always the path of obedience to God's word. You with me, church? So that's what Jesus wants to speak to us today. So let's ask that first question then. What does it mean to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? What he says in verse 20. So just to kind of lay out our pathway here, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And then he goes on to say, you cannot remove the smallest mark of this word. Like the requirement of righteousness will last until heaven and earth pass away until everything is fulfilled. In other words, he's not talking about his first coming, he's talking about his second coming. And he's saying, this law will be in force and in place, the standard that it requires of you to be acceptable to God will be in place until I come back and finalize all things. Now the key to understanding, why then don't we have to live in obedience to the law in order to get justification, in order to be right with God? comes in understanding exactly how Christ fulfills that law. How does he fulfill it for us? And how does he, how does he cause us to then walk in fulfillment of it? So let's ask the question, what does he mean a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees when he concludes with that and says, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you have a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now you and I, we don't live in a time where there's scribes and Pharisees, at least not like sort of by title, right? So one of the things you, you and I need to understand is that when Jesus says that, that would be a shocking statement to say, you need a righteousness greater than them. The scribes were those who had committed their life to the transmission of God's word in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They would spend hours upon hours. It was their career, their job, their life calling to record God's word and to write it out. And then the to make some interpretations from that. And then the Pharisees were considered the most religious of the most religious people. They were the best at keeping the rules. They were the best at keeping the law. They had all of these practices. Often they went beyond what the law required and created extra caveats or extra rules to make it even harder so that only they could be the ones who could say, yes, I've, I've kept the law. So they had all these interpretations. But in general, 
for someone to say, you need to be more righteous than scribes and more righteous than Pharisees. When the average person would have heard that, they would have said, we have no hope of doing that. It would be like me saying to you, uh, I've got a reward for you. I've got something for you. But in order to receive it, you need to have a better understanding of theoretical physics than Einstein. How many of you would be like, good, I'm good. I got it. Or you need to be able to play. I've got something for you, but you need, in order to achieve it, you need to be more musically gifted than Mozart. You'd all immediately go, well, that's hopeless. I, you know, I, I don't, I can't do that, right? So that's how this statement would have, would have struck them. And yet Jesus throughout his life is critical. He is critical of the righteousness of the Pharisees, of the righteousness of the scribes. And we have to ask why. What is it about their righteousness that doesn't measure up, that is not what he's looking for? To do that, let's look at Luke chapter 18. Now, we could go a lot of places, a lot of stories where Jesus interacts with scribes and Pharisees, but one really helpful place is that Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 18, tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, a tax collector is considered the worst kind of sinner, right? This is the kind of person who is... uh, you know, a traitor to their country. They're cheating, skimming money off the top. This, nobody wants to be friends with a tax collector. And Jesus tells this story in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse nine. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, there's a a lot in that story, um, but the thing that I want to show you, there's one of the things Jesus is doing is critiquing the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and there's two parts of their their righteousness that he's particularly critiquing. Here's number one. Number one is that they were more concerned with external than internal righteousness. They, had, they looked righteous on the outside, but had no concern for the true heart of righteousness, whether their heart was truly obeying the law. Now, you remember that Jesus taught us that the fulfillment of the law, of all the laws in the Old Testament, and we're gonna talk more detail about that in a minute, but that the fulfillment of all of them is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love God. And then what, what's the second? Love your neighbor love other people. That's what Jesus says. If you do that, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's actually what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 13. He says, if you, he says, love is the fulfillment of the commandments. So when Jesus is looking at the Pharisee and critiquing the righteousness of the Pharisees and saying, you and I, you need a righteousness greater than that. Saying you need a righteousness that is at a heart level, not just external. And the second thing he's critiquing about the righteousness of the Pharisees is that it's done for their own glory and not for God's. I'm so glad that I'm not like this guy. I do this. Don't you know he's praying this out loud so that everybody can hear it? I am the kind of person who fasts twice a week. By the way, the scriptures did not command him to fast twice a week, but he's gonna let you know he's doing that, right? He's seeking his own glory rather than God's, and that's not the kind of righteousness that Jesus is saying is sufficient. And so he's, when he's saying you need a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's saying you need something to be done in your heart that absolutely transforms who you are. Now, the answer to how that happens takes us back to the first question. What does Jesus mean when he says that I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? Because in that, we find that he fulfills it in such a way that he provides that righteousness for us, the righteousness that goes to the heart, 
and absolutely transforms and changes us so that we live with an internally and gifted righteousness, but also then the command to obey the law of God going forward and to walk in obedience to it and find life in it. So that's a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. So then let's ask the second question I said. How has Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets? Now, the first thing we need to understand is that when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them, what does he mean by the law and the prophets? So maybe you've never read the Old Testament before, maybe you have, but when Jesus uses that phrase, he means I am the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. All of it points to me. The phrase law and prophets is not just referring to two sections of the scripture, although they are two sections. The law being the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Torah, right? Or the Pentateuch. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in it, God lays out the law for us, but he does it in a unique way. And I wanna talk to you about that in just a second. But he lays out the law, and then the prophets is another section of scripture, and you may have heard of prophets like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, and these prophets speak on behalf of God to his people, and they declare to, they declare to them God's desire, his will, the direction they should go as a nation. They speak convicting words, but... For the Jewish person listening to Jesus, they actually included in that definition of the prophets, they included some of the historical books in the prophets, like First and Second Kings, right? Uh, Joshua and Judges, they included all those as part of the prophets because they saw them as written from the, from the viewpoint of the prophets. And the reason that's important is because here, when Jesus is using that, he's not just saying, I'm the fulfillment of the, what the prophets talked about, the Isaiahs and Jeremiahs of the world, and I'm also the fulfillment of the law, or I've come to fulfill and keep the law, all these rules that are written out, right, in uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. He is saying, I am the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And the reason that's important is because he's not just saying, I keep these laws and I fulfill these prophecies. He's saying, all of scripture points to me. Every word of it is leading to me. It's a story that God has been telling. It's not a list of rules. I don't know if you've noticed that when you read the Bible. It's not just a list of rules and regulations. It's a story that God is telling and Jesus is the center of the story. He's the one that everything points to. So I am gonna tell you today some specific ways that the prophets and the law point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. But I want you to see that when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, at the, at the most basic level, what he's saying is, I am the one that is the center of this story. The whole world, its formation, everything God has done and said, it all is leading to me and I am here now. And friends, don't you know everything happening in the world today now is still about him. All of it. And your life too. Which is why Fullness of joy is always found in obedience to God's word, not in contradiction to God's word, because the story's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. The story is about him, and we're part of that story. Praise God. But if you ever think to yourself, the reason you can't find joy and fulfillment outside of obedience to God's word is because you're a part of a story that is about him. And you're never gonna find happiness. You're never gonna find joy lasting and full and flourishing. You're never gonna find it. I'm just telling you, friends, if you're here and you're not in Christ, you're not a follower of his, I'm just telling you, you're gonna strain and struggle your whole life because you're trying to live like the story is about something it's not about. And it won't work. It might work for a time, but it never truly fulfills. That's the message of the scriptures. All points to Jesus. Now, let's look at some specific ways that he is the fulfillment of all the prophets talked about and all the law talked about. And I do this all so that you don't just get an academic exercise. I need you to stick with me. Turn the brains on if they're not on because we're gonna, we're gonna do some lifting now, okay? But I do it all to give you a foundation because here's what's gonna happen. Next week, we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about specific examples of how we have to obey God's word when it comes to our anger, and how we handle that anger. And then we're gonna talk about our lust 
and our desires and how we handle that and think about that. And we're gonna talk about our words and what we say and don't say and the promises we make and keep and don't keep. We're gonna talk about what a righteous life looks like that is according to God's standard, that is living as if his word is true and we are to obey it. And what he's trying to do is set us up to say, you need to understand how all of this is fulfilled in me so that you might then give yourself to obedience to it. All right, you with me, church? All right, great. So let's look at some specific ways that he fulfills the law and the prophets. Now, the first, let's start with the prophets. So when we think about the prophets, I already mentioned Ezekiel and Isaiah, and there are some, one of the most encouraging things to your faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, can be to go and see all the specific ways that Jesus fulfills prophecies. Like, Prophecies of Isaiah 7 and being born of a virgin or prophecies about being born in Bethlehem, you know, that are in the Old Testament, how specifically he fulfills every single one of these or Isaiah 53 and how his suffering and his death fits perfectly with something written 700 years before about who he would be as the Messiah. Now, we could go on and on, but here's what I want you to see. The prophets at their, you know, sort of most fundamental Really what they're declaring to God's people is you have a heart problem. Now let me, let me include the law here for a second and say this. When you read the story of the Old Testament, here's one of the things you notice, you find that happens, is um, you get into Genesis and Exodus, in particular Exodus chapter 20 is where the Ten Commandments are given. And then after giving the Ten Commandments, you might think, okay, what's gonna happen next? We're gonna get the rest of the rules, right? How many laws do you think there are in the Old Testament in, the first, in those first five books? There are 613, 613, and the Pharisees thought they were good at keeping all 613. So rather than it just being, as we might expect, oh, if this is the law, then he gives the Ten Commandments, and then he's just going to tell us the rest of the laws. He's just going to do the the next, you know, 600 plus of them. That's not what happens. Jesus gives the Ten Commandments, and the first of those Ten Commandments is you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not worship an idol. And then right after that, anybody remember what happens in the story? Moses gets the Ten Commandments, comes off the mountain, and what are the people doing? They're worshiping an idol. It's almost as if he set up the story so that you and I read it and go, wow, there's a problem here. The second they get the law, they've already disobeyed it. They've already done, violated the very first of the first commandment. It's almost as if what God is wanting us to see is, hey, you can't keep these. You're not strong enough in your willpower to keep this. And then, you know, some more laws get given a little bit after that. And then almost immediately afterward, there's these stories about how God's people go on to kill and to steal and to hide treasure and to disobey God and to do things he told them not to do. And then there's some more laws given. And then guess what happens after that? There are stories about how they disobey those to where Deuteronomy comes and Moses is saying, you're about to go into the land that God promised you. And I wanna tell you, as you're preparing to go in, you are supposed to obey God's law, but you will not do it. I know you won't. And then after they go into the land, they disobey God in the way they get into the land. And then the book of Judges comes. And if you've ever read read the book of Judges, how many of you have read the book of Judges? Like Gideon, you've heard of Gideon, right? Awesome. Can I just let, clue you in on something? Here's the way the book of Judges works. It goes from bad to worse. So we sometimes read Samson and we think, oh, Samson, he was the strong like, hero of the story. Can I tell you, Samson is not the hero of the story. Samson is the worst judge of all the judges. Samson's life is there to prove to you how evil and wicked the human heart is. That's why Samson's story exists in the Bible. All of it is set up to say, You have a heart problem. Then the people say, we want a king like all the nations around us. God says, you you don't need a king. I'm your king. They say, no, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations around us. So God acquiesces. He gives them a king. And then what do all those kings do? They disobey God and they oppress the people. There's occasionally a good one, good for a little while, and then there's more bad ones. So again and again, here's what I want you to see. The whole Old Testament is is set up to point out this human heart problem to us. You have not and you cannot keep the law. It was never given 
as a, as a means of righteousness. It was never given by God to say, keep this, obey this, and you will then have the righteousness you need. The whole story is set up to teach you and I that we need someone to keep the law for us because we can't keep it ourselves. Now, say all that to get to these specific prophecies. Now, these aren't specific prophecies about Jesus and what he would do and who he would be, but there's two prophecies in the Old Testament, one in Ezekiel 36 and one in Jeremiah 31. And both of them are about the new covenant that God is going to make to replace the old covenant of the law. And in both of them, here's what the prophets say. In Ezekiel 36, God says, all these laws that I've given you are there to point out that you have a heart problem and you need a righteousness that goes deeper than this. And in Ezekiel 36, I declare to you that I will make a new covenant with you. And as a result of that covenant, I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that's tender to God, that loves his law and that wants to follow him. I'm gonna fix your heart problem. And in Jeremiah 31, same idea. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he says, when I make this new covenant with you, I will write my law on your heart. In other words, no longer will it be this external thing that you have to say, I have a duty to obey it, but I will plant it in you so much so that you want to obey it and you love it as my law and you say you are right and good and it's written on your heart so that it's an internal righteousness. What was Jesus' critique of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? That it was focused on the external, not on the heart. And Jesus is saying, I fulfill all that the prophets talk about. Specifically, I am the one who has come to usher in this new covenant. I'm the one who's able to change your heart, not just your actions. Do you remember when you responded to the gospel for the first time? You remember? Some of us were young. Some of us were a little older. Do you remember what changed inside of you? If nothing changed inside of you, you didn't respond to the gospel, by the way. Do you remember how your desires changed? How all of a sudden you used to love this thing and now you don't love it anymore? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have the power to absolutely change your heart. So when Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of the prophets, he's not just saying, I'm the one the prophets talked about and I came, although yes, that's true. He's saying, I am the one who can give you the righteousness, the new heart, the new covenant that is being ushered in. That's what he means when he says, I'm the fulfillment of the prophets. Now, let's look at the law for a second. When Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law, how is he the fulfillment of that law? I already said there's 613 commands. Now, here's what you need to see. There is, the law is often divided um, into three categories, the Old Testament law, and this may be unfamiliar territory to you, but this is why I was saying like, turn on, turn on the brains here, because we need to understand that Jesus talks in terms of the, there is the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. All the laws in the Old Testament, those 613 that I talked about, sort of divide into those three categories, judicial, moral, ceremonial. I think I said them in a different order that time, but you get, you get my drift. Judicial, ceremonial, moral. I said it in three different orders, didn't I? The three times I said it. I'm just making sure you're paying attention. That's all, all right? So the key to understanding, and here's a question. It's a, like a legitimate question, and, and you've probably gotten this from like a family member who's not a follower of Jesus, is, hey, when you guys read the Old Testament, there's some of these laws that you obey, and there's other ones you don't. Why is that? Particularly if Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of the law, then does Jesus just mean that I, like, I've come, I've kept the law perfectly, so now how you live doesn't matter. One of the things that's really important to understand is that Jesus is teaching this right here at this moment because he's anticipating the criticism he's going to get from the scribes and Pharisees in the days to come. This is so early in his ministry, but he's almost, not almost, he is preemptively answering their question because Jesus is gonna start going around and hanging out with the worst kind of sinners. 
He's going to be hanging out with the people that all these scribes and Pharisees say, you can't even be around those kinds of people and keep any kind of semblance of being God honoring. Those people are terrible. How can you be around them? He's going to be criticized for that. And then he's also going to declare that God's grace is big enough to have tax collectors and prostitutes and, the, and every kind of sinner come into the kingdom of God. And that's deeply offensive to religious, self-righteous people. He's going to declare this radical grace. And he's going to say, it's for everybody. Anyone who will come, it is for you. Can I say that again? Anyone who will come, it is for you. This radical grace Jesus is going to proclaim. So the accusation against him becomes this. You're teaching people they can live however they want, and it doesn't matter. And of course, we know that grace does not preclude walking in obedience to God's word. Grace becomes the thing that makes us want to live in obedience to God's word. Yes, amen? We don't say, oh, Jesus forgives me for every sin because he died on the cross. He paid the penalty for it. So now I can just do whatever I want. Friends, can I tell you, Romans 6 tells us that's evidence of a heart that truly has not understood saving grace. That's someone who has not received saving grace. Anyone who says that. Saving grace always results in a heart that desires to obey God, always. Doesn't mean we don't wrestle with it. Doesn't mean sometimes we don't have desires that still have to be sanctified, changed, transformed. But the heart all that, that is in Christ moves towards obedience. It loves it. Why? Because it's been changed, transformed from the inside out. So Jesus is responding to that criticism in advance. He's saying preemptively, let me tell you, Pharisees who are going to criticize me, let me just tell you, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill the law. In other words, everything the law is meant to accomplish, that's what I'm here to do. Let's talk about what that looks like then. That's, that's what he's saying. He's sort of answering that criticism. So how does Christ fulfill the law? How does he become the fulfillment? Number one, I'm gonna give you five ways Christ fulfills the law. And each one, I'm just gonna hit them quickly. The first way is that Christ fulfills the law by keeping it perfectly. Christ fulfills the law by keeping it perfectly. So he, he looks at the moral law, the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and he keeps all of it so that in his life he can say, there is no fault that can be found with me. Now, at some moments, the Pharisees maybe go, hey, your disciples are eating without washing their hands. Hey, your disciples are, you know, or you're breaking the Sabbath by healing someone on the Sabbath. And every one of those times, Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, because the law doesn't matter. He never says that. He says, you don't understand the law I'm the one who actually wrote this law. I'm telling you what it truly means. And I am fulfilling it and living it perfectly. So that's the first thing. And it's so important because if Christ didn't keep the law perfectly, then the next part of the way he fulfills the law becomes a moot point. It doesn't help us. Here's the second way Christ fulfills the law. Christ fulfilled the law by dying as the penalty for sin that the law prescribed. Not for his own sin, but for whose, church? ours, for yours and for mine. He kept it perfectly so that he had no need to pay the penalty required for breaking it, but all of us have broken it. And so Christ, then when he goes to the cross, pays the penalty under the law. He fulfills what the law requires as a penalty for violating the righteous standard of God. That's the second way that Christ fulfills the law. Now, the third is specific to that ceremonial law. Christ fulfills the law by becoming our purification. Christ fulfills the law by becoming our purification. So I reference those ceremonial laws. Those are the places in scripture where you see all the prescriptions about um, dietary laws, about washing. You're, you know, Before you go into the presence of God, you go through ceremonial washing. There's a sacrificial system that's put in place with a high priest who offers sacrifices once a year, goes into the Holy of Holies. All those ceremonial laws all aim at one thing, to display and declare the purity, the absolute holiness of God, and that we may not approach him in just any way we want to that he may only be approached in holiness. 
And so those ceremonial laws serve as a reminder of that. They were never designed to truly purify because they could never touch the what? The heart. They could wash the outside, but they couldn't touch the heart. And so Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of all those ceremonial laws. I am your purification and not just a purification of your outside, but a purification of your inside. I am the one who has come to do what all that ceremonial law points to. I'm the great high priest who now can go before the father and give you access to the father. I am the temple of God, the tabernacle where you meet him. I am your washing that washes you clean. And I am the sacrifice, not that has to be made again and again and again and again, but the once and for all sacrifice that once given and received purifies you forever so that you might go into the presence of God. Do you see it? Now, the question, why don't we still keep the ceremonial law? is because we have come to him and he has purified us and all that the ceremonial law was intended to display has now been fulfilled in him. So we don't follow dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. And we don't, probably right now, if you were to look at the the tag on your clothing, you're violating an Old Testament law through mixing fabrics together. That polyester cotton blend, that's a no-no. Right, so the idea right? The idea there is that Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of all these things. That's why we don't keep the ceremonial law. Now, the third thing, or the fourth, sorry, fourth way that Jesus fulfills the law is he fulfills the law by creating the church. So the judicial law, let's talk about that for a second. The judicial law was all the laws that you find in the Old Testament that were there to prescribe how the nation should live with each other. So, hey, somebody does this, they break this law, this is the penalty for that. If someone, you know, uh, accidentally kills someone else's ox or donkey or whatever, this is the penalty for that. Like, there's all these laws about how they're to live in society together. And those laws were specifically, those judicial laws, were for the nation of Israel at a time when the people of God was a, net, was a physical nation in the world. But then Jesus comes and he establishes as the people of God, no longer the nation of Israel, but now who? The church, people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, who now are his through faith in his sacrifice and resurrection have now become the people of God. And he says to those people, a new commandment I give you, John 13, that you what one another? Anybody remember? Love one another. Good job, buddy. That you love one one another. In other words, he has established for himself a people and he has said, my law that you are to obey, the summation of the whole law, love God and love each other. You're going to be my people. And the way it's going to be noticed that you're my people is if you love each other. Can I emphasize, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that you love the person sitting to your right and to your left. Follower of Christ, the mark that you are among the people of God is that you live out the law of God, the commandments of God in love for one another. At every point, ask, how do I love my brother? How do I love my sister? So when Jesus says, well, let me go back. The reason we don't live according to the judicial law, when you see those laws in the Old Testament about if this, then you gotta pay this penalty and do that thing is because those laws existed And Jesus has said, well, I've come and in establishing the church, I have now fulfilled all those judicial laws and replaced them, so to speak, brought in a new era of the people of God where it's now not not a physical nation, but it's now all people everywhere who would come to me by faith. And I'm gonna tell you that the mark of those people is still that they would love one another, but it does away with the need to follow the judicial law. So does that help you understand why we don't obey ceremonial law and judicial law? Does that help? Can I tell you what we do do still obey? The moral law. Because would you say it's still a good idea that we obey the commandment, do not murder? Okay, just make it, three people answered yes. What does that mean for the rest of you? Very concerned about this. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery, right? These are all moral laws that we recognize are still in force. We all would recognize and say, yeah, we still obey those. Well, if Christ meant I've come to fulfill the law and all that means is I kept it for you so now you can do whatever you want, then yeah, then we wouldn't need to obey any of it. But Jesus is saying, no, 
the law still stands as a perfect demonstration of righteousness. Not that you would be justified. Galatians 3 says no one is justified by works of the law. We are justified by faith through grace alone. And that's it. So we don't keep the law to justify ourselves to God. We keep the law because Christ has fulfilled it. So he's fulfilled the ceremonial law in such a way that we do not still practice the ceremonial law. He's fulfilled the judicial law in such a way that we do not still try to keep the judicial law as a standard by which we must live. But when he says, I have fulfilled now the moral law, there's two things at play here. Number one is we recognize that because of our heart problem, we couldn't keep it ourselves. And so the law has trapped us under sin, this moral law, and has shown us we can't do it. And that's what we're gonna see in each of the passages. Hey, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I tell you, if you have anger in your heart towards a brother or sister, you have murdered them. Do you see what he's doing there? He's trapping you. Can anybody say they've never been angry with someone? No, you can't. Not one of us can. So he's trapping us under it. And he's saying, one, Galatians 3, I'm showing you, this law is there to show you that you need a savior. That's part of what's going on. But the second thing is it doesn't dismiss the standard of the law as a right way to live, the moral law. So we still live in obedience to that moral law, not to justify ourselves before God. We can't do that. But as the right response to having been justified by him. Does that make sense? As a right response to having been justified, we still want to obey his commandments. That's what the scriptures say. Anyone who loves me, 1 John, anyone who loves me will what? Obey my commandments, right? That's what we see there. So the last way that we see Christ fulfills the law is that he fulfills the law by giving us his spirit. Christ fulfills the law by giving us his spirit. In Romans chapter eight, we find these words. The whole chapter is about how to live life, not according to our own flesh and strength, but how to live according to the spirit, like how to live in a, in a way that I'm surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. In Romans chapter eight, verses three and four, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now get this, here's the, here's the part I want you to catch. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now the next sentence is gonna be, the next half of it is gonna be really important because you could read that and you could say, okay, what Paul is saying there is that Jesus came and he kept the law perfectly, like we talked about, so that he could pay the penalty for us. He kept it. I couldn't keep it. He did. And that could be what he's talking about. But remember, this whole chapter is about not just that we've been justified. That's Romans 5. That's Romans then 6 following up on that. It's actually Romans 4, 5, and 6. He's talking about this justifying work that's happened. Now this is about how do we live in light of that justifying work. And so he says this righteous requirement of the law that it might be fulfilled. And he's not just talking about fulfilled that Christ did it for us. He's talking about fulfilled in our like daily lives. How do you fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in your daily life? In other words, how do you keep obeying the righteous standards of God, obeying his commands, treating the word as authoritative and wanting to, wanting to live in obedience to it? And here's the answer. In Romans chapter eight, verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the what? Spirit. What he's saying is the spirit is part of how Christ fulfills the law. He plants it in your heart. That heart transformation that Ezekiel and Jeremiah were, were talking about, and Jesus says, I'm the one who's come to bring that about. The way he brings it about is that we believe and then he imparts his spirit to us so that now that's how the law is written on our hearts. That's what Jeremiah 31 is talking about when he says, I will, I will write the law on your heart. Well, he doesn't literally mean he's gonna put a bunch of laws inside of our heart. He means I'm gonna put my spirit in you. My spirit's gonna teach you how to obey me. My spirit is gonna teach you right and wrong. 
how to walk in faithfulness and obedience. It's now inside of you, no longer outside of you. That's how the heart problem is solved. Christ fulfills the law and enables us to live according to the righteous standard of the law, not for justification, but as a right response to it by putting his spirit within us. Isn't Christ amazing? His fulfillment of the prophets, his fulfillment of the law. Friends, can I just say, if you don't believe in him, I hope that what you hear today is, an, is about an amazing savior. Everything I have said to you is true. Everything the Old Testament has said points to him. He is able to do every bit and more of what I have declared to you today. So friends, hear that now. Let me return back to my Ikea example. So the message for us today is this. Don't throw the directions away. Don't act as if you can put the, put the life together that you need to have put together without those directions. God's word is to be obeyed. And in the weeks that come, we're gonna come and find specific examples of that that is gonna challenge us deeply to consider our words, our actions, our thoughts so that our hearts would continue to be transformed by the power of the Spirit. Hope you'll come and join me on, on the journey of examining the transformative power of the Spirit in fulfillment of the law that Christ has brought about for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love your word. And I don't know how sufficient a job I've done at all of communicating it today, Lord, but I know, I trust that where your word speaks, even just read, even those words that you spoke, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, that as your people hear that, that it strikes a chord and resonates in us and makes us want to obey you, wants us to, makes us want to walk in obedience to you, so help us to do it. Holy Spirit, thank you for taking up residence in us in fulfillment of the work of Jesus in the plan of the Father, and we pray that you would help us to walk in obedience to your word, to love your law. Thank you for writing it on our hearts. Would you receive our praises now as your people responding to the declaration of how good you are, what a savior you are. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.